Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live via satellite is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hi, Chandler! How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you ready to begin another grand experiment? I am very ready. I love doing experiments with you. All right, let's give it a whirl. Okay, let's do that. I also want to say hello, listeners. We love you guys, and we're so happy that you're there. Just a little side note, uh, looking out my window at the bay, there are two little sparrows building a nest in my window. It's the best. So I just wanted to share that with you. Yes, I uh, hope our listeners enjoy that little uh, pictorial image of the uh, sparrows building their nest by the sea. Uh, we'd like to uh, thank all of our uh, returning listeners uh, for uh, continuing to listen to our little experiment here. And uh, we'd like to welcome all of those new listeners. If this is your first episode of our podcast, uh, I'll explain a little bit of uh, how it works. Uh, so uh, in a moment, I will give the astrological birth data of a random historical figure uh, to my mother. Uh, now, I know who this person is because I selected uh, this mystery history guest. Uh, you, the listening audience, know who it is because it's in the title of today's episode, but Mom has no idea who this person could be. Uh, so I will give her the astrological birth data of this mystery history guest. That is the birth date, time, and location. Uh, she will then input that data into the back computer, and out will come the astrological birth chart, where all the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment that person was born. Uh, she will then do her best to give us a blind reading of this chart, uh, telling us what she can of the person's personality, characteristics, fortunes, um, and then I will reveal to her who our mystery history guest is. I'll give a little background about the person, and then together uh, we'll figure out how accurate the chart was at predicting uh, what that person would do. Uh, so without any further ado, let us begin. All right, I'm ready. Uh, so this is a male. Okay. 
born on the 24th of March, 1874. Okay. Do we, by any chance, have a time of birth? We do. Oh, that's so good. What is it? 4 a.m. Four, exactly? Exactly. Alright, we're going with that. Where in the world? Uh, Hungary. Hungary. Ooh. At least that's what it is today. At the time, it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Ooh, okay, and what town? Uh, Budapest. Budapest. So again, this is a male born on March 24th, 1874. Uh, we're going with 4 a.m. That is uh, the time that it seems to be agreed upon. And born in Budapest, Hungary. Well, my goodness. Woof! Are you seeing this? I am. That is very concentrated. <laughs> oh my, that is a lot. That is... Okay, so, wow. Okay, well, I'm, I'm actually going to start with uh, the rising sign, the first house cusp, because I find that people who have Aquarius rising are going to be very unique, all right? So if this birth time is correct, that puts this person's ascendant at seven degrees Aquarius, okay? Now, this person also has Saturn at 11 degrees Aquarius, which would make it conjunct, okay? Because within five degrees is a conjunction. So having Saturn conjunct your ascendant in Aquarius should make you very unique, very future-minded very technologically minded and also could be very humanitarian minded or the dark side of that could make this a totalitarian dictator <laughs> with no room <laughs> for a question so there's that <laughs> and as you can see his first house cusp see how this encompasses a very large first house cusp Mm -hmm. making this seventh house cusp also very large. Okay. So this person also has Mercury in Pisces in the first house. Mercury in Pisces is a poetic way of communication, but also having Mercury in the first house would make this person seem more communicative. It would make them... I would hope, easy to communicate with because it's Mercury and Pisces in the first house. So we'll leave that where it is. Then we have Sun at three degrees Aries, which even at three degrees Aries is still on the cusp of Pisces. So although this person has Sun in Aries, which is a war sign, right? Uh, they are only three degrees Aries. So... It could give them some Piscean traits, some artistic traits, but all of these planets, one, two, three, four, five, and fourth node are all falling in the second house. If this birth time is correct, 
making this uh, chart the correct and accurate time of birth, this person has a lot going on with finances and values and how they make money. And it seems to be connected to Aries things, Mars things, which is war. Um, hmm. Also, direction and drive. It doesn't have to be war, but very, very driven. Okay, Aries and Mars represent a very intense drive. So it could be very intense drive to make money. Uh, values, valuables, the things you like. Um, this person should have been surrounded by uh, opulent things because it's uh, second house ruled by Aries. So very interesting. But also, yeah, because see, this here we have this is your Aquarian. Right? See, it starts in the 12th house and moves here. You see that channeling? Yeah. Then we have this Pisces. It starts in the first house and ends in the first house. Okay? So we have two signs in the first house, definitive by house cusps. Okay? And then the second house cusp starts with Aries and moves here to Taurus, right? But we. So the first house even has a little bit of Aries in it. Tiny bit. Yes, a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have one, two, three signs with this little sliver right here of Aries in the first house, giving this person some, you know, oomph in their uniqueness, you know. So then we have Mercury in Pisces. I jumped over the mic. There it is, right there. Okay, but I'm looking at Venus talking about Mercury. Okay, so then we have Venus at 10 degrees Aries, okay, which would make this person like uh, Aries, Martian things, very fiery, opulent, not as showy as like a Leo, right? Because a Leo is more about look at me, you know, look at, at everything. You know, look at everything that has to do with me. And Aries is more, could even be uh, reclusive, you know, with their belongings and their behaviors. But they have Venus in Aries, which is going to make them like women that are strong, okay? But they also have Chiron at where are Chiron? 17 degrees Aries. None of these are conjunct by degree, but they are all conjunct by sign, right? So now you have Chiron connecting with all of these other things that could give you some difficulty with early life. Could be siblings, could be early education, something about early life and values and siblings and elementary education issues with this and leadership and uh things that have to do with mods direction and passion uh this kind of thing then we have uh neptune also in aries at 27 degrees okay all of these things in the second house because you have a very high concentration of planets 
for this person in the second house. And do you see how everything except their Jupiter is in this bottom hemisphere? Right. Making them very earthbound, okay? They don't have a lot of time for philosophies and chit-chat, you know? Uh If this is correct, they're not about that. They are on the path to getting whatever needs to be done, okay? Now, this person also in the second house has North Node. This means this North Node is in Taurus, though, okay? Because we have Aries and Taurus in the second house. Uh, So... This north node in uh, Taurus in the second house also makes them like valuables and have a respect and want and passion for valuables and nice things. I would imagine that if this first house cusp is correct, that this person had a very opulent taste. But... This person also has Pluto at 20 degrees Taurus in the third house. Third house is communications. It's ruled by Gemini, so it's all of the Gemini things. Pluto in Taurus. No matter how you look at it, Pluto in Taurus is going to be very powerful. Okay, that is very bullish. That's very, uh, don't try to stop this person from where they're trying to go because it would be impossible. Um, but North Node gives you, um, kind of a North Node is what you're supposed to do. Okay. So there are lessons involved with it, difficulties, just like there are going to be lessons involved with this self-esteem, this how you represent yourself, how people see you, right? Having Saturn in the first house gives you like a a control, right? People maybe see you as controlled or you need to get control of that uh, Aquarian, Aquarius rising. Uh, let's go to fourth house. There's nothing in the fourth house, but it's ruled by Gemini. Moon is in the fifth house in Gemini, which is interesting because Moon in Gemini is uh, communications, the mother. Moon is mother, and in the fifth house, fifth house is ruled by the sun because it's ruled by Leo. Okay, but in this situation. This person has fifth house rulers, Gemini, and they have their moon there at 22 degrees. Interesting. Like, uh, people who have moon in Gemini uh, could feel that their mothers were not super, um, you know, nurturing, more. They've got you dressed properly. They've taught you. Uh, you they wanted you to be educated. Uh, all the things that have to do with Gemini. They, they've taught you your manners. You know, these kind of things. Interesting. Then sixth house is ruled by Cancer. Sixth house, sixth house is, um, you know, your work. How you approach work. So somehow this person has sixth house ruled by Cancer, which would be 
I mean, on a very low level, this person could be a chef, <laughs> you know, like their career, not their career. Don't get me wrong. Their, their, their work, the way they approach work is in a nurturing way, maybe even in a, uh, a creative way. But, you know, cancer, cancer people are very good at feeding you and nurturing you. So there's that. Then this person has Uranus in Leo in the sixth house. So that definitely changes the landscape because Uranus, as we know, is lightning, earthquakes, and quick change and things like that. And in Leo in the sixth house, there could be some power in the career with things that have to do with Leo. It could be leadership, it could be entertainment, it could be uh, romance, all the things that have to do with Leo. And then this person has Leo on their seventh house cusp, giving them a romantic way of dealing with partners, but they don't have anything in Leo. I apologize for my little birds that are building their nest. They're very chirpy right now. They seem to be very happy. And, um, but then in, in this here, we have Jupiter at 26 degrees Virgo, still falling in that seventh house. Okay. So there could be some uh, difficulty because the way that a Leo approaches romance is almost opposite from the way a Virgo approaches romance, right? But the only planet they have in the seventh house is this Jupiter and Virgo. And having Jupiter in the seventh house offers you partners. Jupiter will offer you partners over and over and over when you have Jupiter in the seventh. But it's this Virgonian uh, clinical way of dealing with a partner as opposed to the house cusp, which is the Leo, which would be very romantic. Okay. Then Eighth house cusp is Libra, ninth house cusp is Scorpio, tenth house cusp and Midhaven are in Sagittarius, which would give this person a rather cavalier way of dealing with their career because it's Sagittarius. And then eleventh uh, house cusp is also Sagittarius. See how we have this very narrow right there, same as we do down here on this side. And then this person has 12th house cusps Capricorn, which would, there's nothing in that house, but it would deal with Saturn-ish karma, karma with finances, karma with business, karma with executive positions. Is any of this making any sense? Um... There are certainly some parts that make a lot of sense. I think that um, the, the there are some other things that I, I wouldn't necessarily pick as uh, it, it's not the, I, something that I would just look at and say, oh, this is automatically this person. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are some ways I, I, with so much in Aries, uh, I, I think that maybe there are other ways of interpreting conflict um that that would make it to where it makes more sense for him mm -hmm. um and and other ways of interpreting things and 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 possessions that would make it um 
make more sense for him. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly one of the most uh, unique and creative people ever. Uh, So, uh, yeah, there there are lots of things that are making sense, but uh, maybe some things that we'll need to go over at the end. Okay, so clearly we have this Aquarius in the first house would make them very unique and very otherworldly, even, Um, you know, there's nothing more unique than an Aries, period. You mean Aquarius? uh, Yeah, Aquarius, yes, correct me, Chandler, when I jump over to something else. Then an Aquarius. uh, They're going to be the most unique, the most futuristic. They're going to be the ones that say the thing that's the most outlandish, while at the same time it makes sense kind of thing. Okay, but Aries is also passionate, very passionate. Could be angry, but they are the most passionate lovers. They are over, I mean, their passion is their fire, right? So that's why you think, oh, an Aries has a terrible temper. Well, it might have taken them a while to get to that place, but it's because they're so passionate about whatever it is that it took them there. Or they could have a quick draw temper, really fast, fiery, you know, but then it also goes away that fast. So I've kind of gone through all of the planets and their houses. Um, do you have any questions? Yes. Um, what sort of profession do you see this person going into? Okay. Well, with this Aquarius on the first house, it could be anything. All right. But they do have moon in the fifth. So, and it's, you know, they're very communicative and can communicate with their abilities, their 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 creative abilities, okay? Because this house is also, you know, entertainment. Now, we have had, uh, you know, charts where, like with Dolly Madison, her creativity was uh, entertaining. It wasn't um, that she was an entertainer. She was entertaining, right? Which is which also fits. So any level of entertaining, there is a love of that because the moon is there, the emotion is there. But also having Uranus in the sixth house in Leo could make their work very... Um, like you've never seen anything like that before. Does that make sense? Yes. It could make their work like, oh, this is, no one's ever done this before, right? With their work. So that's very Uranus because Uranus is uh, new and different and a different way and a different way of looking at something, right? So having that Aquarius on the first house and then having Uranus in Leo in the sixth house could make their work like the first time anyone had ever seen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's definitely right on. Okay. Um. Uh, what can you tell me about their parents? Well, they have sun at three degrees Aries, so that would represent the father. It is possible that the father could have been overbearing, very passionate, could have been in the military. Uh, they have son in the second house, so it's possible that the father could have 
been um, attached to valuables or been in uh, some sort of connection with valuables. The mother, on the other hand, we touched on a little bit, which is uh, Moon and Gemini. I think that this mother would have been very tactile, uh, very communicative, very interested in having this child be educated and uh, um, you know definitely educated all the things that and, and and communicate but not necessarily super loving like a like a moon in cancer would be you know or a moon in Leo <laughs> like wow um, Irish mother you know that kind of thing or uh, yeah but on oh. the other hand, of, the other side of that is also, you know, fifth house, which is children. So the mother could have gotten that aspect from the fifth house and been really nurturing in that aspect. Hmm. Because fifth house is children. Uh, what is he looking for in a significant other? Um, this person has Venus in Aries. Okay. So having Venus in Aries, and it's at 10 degrees, so it's significant. This person would be looking for someone who was strong. Whether this person was a go-getter, like this was their partner, this was the person that that they felt they re really was the, uh, uh, the foundation, you know, when they say, uh, you know, a strong woman behind the man kind of thing. So I would think that. And this woman would also be very passionate, very uh, fiery. Should be. Okay. And uh, how is he at business? Well, there's a lot going on in the second house. Okay. And this second house regarding I mean, he has North Node and Chiron and Neptune there. So uh, that could be very creative in business, okay? Or it could throw him for a loop. In other words, too creative for his own good. But North Node and Taurus should make him be grounded. All right, but there's a lot going on in that second house. Now, 10th house is Sag. So, again, Sagittarius on the 10th house could make him very cavalier, very. The dark side would be more like, well, I'm going to win no matter what, you know, thinking that they're going to, you know, maybe gamble. With. Like a hubris? Uh-huh. Something like that. But, you know, we have... Uh, sixth house has Uranus in it, which is a lot. Like, that's lightning fast. Things can come and go as far as work. Okay? But also make this person very kind of... Uh, technically capable in a way that is otherworldly, along with that, you know... Aquarius in the first house. This Leo in, in Uranus is making them an unusual, unique, uh, maybe performer or uh, first time ever anybody's ever seen this done kind of thing. And that uh, Sagittarius on the 10th house, which is career, 
and also having, you know, Midhaven at three degrees Sagittarius, but Midhaven at three degrees Sagittarius still has some Scorpio in it. So there could be some sex appeal involved with this career. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Um, so this might be a bit of an odd question, um, but what is his relationship with water? Um, he has Mercury in Pisces in the first house. So there could definitely be some connection to water. He's got he's got cancer, which is a water sign, on his sixth house cusp, which is your work. So he could work near water or work on the water, okay? Then he has this midhaven at three degrees, Sag, which puts part of his, uh, you know, two more degrees are still living over here in Scorpio, which is also water. So there could definitely be a connection to water. Okay. Um, how would he uh, handle a uh, tight or restrained situation? I don't think this person would handle that well at all because this person has too many planets in Aries and they would get a sword and cut those restraints, you know, and having, if it's in, if it's in work, it is possible that they would tolerate it a little bit, but I find that hard to believe that this person would tolerate very much, very many restraints. Mm-hmm. They, in other words, like they would suffocate, like they can't create and do what they need to do with any restraints. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. They got that mm-hmm. Aquarius on the first house. They got a Uranus in the sixth house. They've got all that Aries in the second house. If you restrain them, you're suffocating them. You know, they won't do well like that. I mean, I have Mars in Aries and I cannot be restrained in any way, shape or form. do not even try um what is this person's uh self-esteem like what is their ego like well if you go to the first house with that aquarius and saturn there it's possible that they could be they have a unique self-esteem um they could feel that they're never good enough. They could feel that they constantly have to try for their for themselves, right? Because they have Saturn conjunct their ascendant, meaning there's control there, right? They feel like they always have to do more. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. But I don't think their self-esteem is um, like obvious. I, I think that would be an internal struggle because with that, like they might just like fly their freak flag, you know, like really? This is what we're going to do? Okay. Well, then I'm just going to get weirder, you know, because there's going to be some uniqueness involved with that Aquarius on the first house, one way or another. Mm-hmm. It's different mm-hmm. than your average bear. Mm-hmm. 
Um, is this an athletic person? Mars and Taurus. Um, if it was Mars and Aries, I would say probably, you know, more than likely they would be athletic. But this Mars and Taurus, they have Mars and Taurus at one degree, okay? Um, conjunct their north node in Taurus. And, and this is in the second house, so I would think that they would be more slow and methodical than like a track star or something like that, you know? And their Mars is in the second house, so it has to do more with values and belongings and acquiring them I mean but they could be uh, a titan you know Mars and Aries mm -hmm. Mars and Taurus makes them very strong but it's only, it's only one degree so they have Mars at one degree Taurus putting also some of that into Aries and Aries are warriors so it's possible. I just feel like this person is more passionate about weird stuff. I don't know. What is this person's work ethic like? Uh, with Uranus in that sixth house, it could go anywhere from being a brilliant inventor to being a person who has a very hit and miss behavior with their work. Because they get, they do this and then they do that and then they do this and then they do that and then they're tired of that because now they want to do this. But oh, I just thought about this. Maybe I want to do this. That's what I would think. Okay. I wouldn't want Uranus in my sixth house and then be trying to hold down a job. That's not. I mean, I would assume that they're much better working for themselves than mm -hmm. working for someone else. But I don't know. They could be brilliant and they could be very technological, and they could, you know. Be okay as long as it was the right environment. Okay. And again, I mean, this is a person who was born in whatever the 1800s, so we may or may not have the right birth time for them. So. Mm -hmm. um, what is this person's relationship with um, secrets? Well, they have Neptune in Aries in the second house. Neptune and Pluto both can deal with secrets and the unknown and what's in the veil. They have Pluto in the third house, which is the house of communication because it's ruled by Gemini, right? So with Pluto there, they can have very, very powerful secrets that uh, have to do with like espionage and uh, secrets about... Uh, I don't know, like secret communications, also dealing with the occult or dealing with taboo subjects, anything that has to do, you know, this Pluto rules Scorpio, which is all those things. Uh, what does person, um, what is their relationship with deception? Well, they have Neptune at 27 degrees in Aries in the second house, okay? So Neptune can 
for all the creativity that Neptune can give you, right? Because Neptune rules Pisces, so it can give you psychic ability, it can give you, you know, poetry, it can give you music, it can give you all of these brilliant, wonderful things. It can also give you uh, insanity and absolutely unknown. Like the veil is down, right? It's very secret. It's very covert. And it's in Aries, right? So that's war. So this person could be a spy, okay? Because they also have that Pluto in the third house, which is very powerful in communications, but Pluto is going to be secrets, right? So if this person were some sort of spy, I would assume they did very well with it because Neptune will not reveal the secret. It, the secret will never be revealed if it isn't meant to be. It, is, it will hide it. Neptune is the veil and Pluto is secrets, you know, depending on where it is. It's, I mean, it, it, it rep, Pluto rep, represents all of the things that rule Scorpio, which is you know, sexuality and secrets and, and the unknown and the occult and, 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 and um, you know, uh, taboo things. So this person has two very intense placements of things that could connect to secrets. Uh, if others are being deceived and he doesn't want them to be, what would he do? Well, Someone if, else. He's not the one deceiving. If this person wants something, period. Okay. If this person wants to do something, he's going to do it. He, they, this person is not a person who is going to be held back. Okay. There's way too much Aries in his chart. Too much Aries and too much Taurus. Um, I would suggest, I wouldn't want to meet this person toe to toe and be on the other side of this person. Because for as creative and unique and, and all of the things that this person is, they could be very formidable with this, all this Aries and Taurus. The different, like, <laughs> no, but again, that, that Aquarius on the first house could be totalitarian dictators, so. I mean, that is the far other end of Aquarius. On one side, it's all humanitarian. On the other side, it's like dictator. And if this person was a dictator, they're doing stuff nobody ever did before. And they're doing it in a way that uh, you can't stop them. So I, I don't know. I would hope if this person was some sort of dictator, <laughs> um, what is this person's relationship with the supernatural well this person can have a definite relationship with the supernatural because they have neptune at 27 degrees aries which is like it could be a passion for them you know they have pluto in um taurus in the third house and the occult would be like, <laughs> okay, far end of that would be 
because third house is communications and they have Pluto there and Pluto is the occult, they could be trying to communicate with the other side or communicate in supernatural ways. That's possible. Because they're also got that weird Uranus and Leo on the sixth house, which could be somehow connected to their work. Um, is there uh, anything else about this chart that you haven't uh, talked about already? Well, you know, as usual, if we do have the right time of birth, then, uh, you know, this is pretty much what I'm seeing. And I think this person could have been very powerful. And, but at the same time, like, like they don't have the Aries on the first house, you know, which makes them like, ha, oh, I am a warrior. They have Aquarius on the first house, which I don't know, that could make them all the way, like, you know, totalitarian dictator or really weird and unique and different, you know, I like people who have Aquarius on the first house, but this person should have been very intense with all of this at the bottom of their charts. That's what I got. Are you ready for the summary of our findings? Yes. Okay. Uh, the first thing that you said is that this person would be very unique. Uh, would be future-minded, uh, technological, humanitarian, or totalitarian. Uh, there is uh, almost poetic uh, communication. Communication comes easy to them. Uh, there are uh, finances, uh, there's values connected. Uh, the finances and values are connected to war or conflict or an intense drive. Surrounded by opulent things could be reclusive with belongings. He would like strong women. Uh, there's a difficulty with early life, something about values or siblings or early education. Uh, he is not, uh, possibly not cerebral, very grounded in the physical world. Uh, he, um, like, he could like valuables. He likes opulence. Uh, do not try and stop this person. People will see him as controlled or need to get control. Mother might not be uh, super nurturing, may not be emotionally available, more um, about uh, manners and education. Uh, he would approach work in a creative but nurturing way. He could be very romantic. He could be cavalier with his career. There is maybe karma connected with an executive position. Uh, he could be one of the most passionate lovers. Uh, communicate with a creative ability. There is a love of entertaining. And whatever he does, it's going to be novel. It will be unique. Uh, it will be the work that he does will be new and different. His father could be overbearing, uh, maybe passionate, maybe some connection to the military. Uh, there might be a connection to valuables. The mother is tactile, uh, grounded in the physical world, uh, communicative, uh, very much wants an education for her child. 
uh, her or his uh, romantic partner, he would want someone who's strong, a go-getter, someone who's supportive and passionate but fiery. Uh, he could be very creative in business, maybe too creative. Uh, the, he could be grounded uh, with business, but there could be also a possible hubris involved. Work uh, comes and goes very fast. Uh, he is technically capable, uh, and uh, technologically there's an otherworldliness about him. He could be a unique performer. Uh, there's a sex appeal connected with his career. Uh, his work could revolve around water. He would not handle a restrained situation well. He would need to get out quickly. Cannot handle with restraints. Cannot create with restraints. They are suffocating. Uh, there is a unique self-esteem. Uh, constantly having to try. Having to go bigger. Having to do more. Having to top himself. There, But this would all be an internal struggle. Uh, he could be slow and methodical. Uh... He is very strong. He could be a, a titan of strength. Uh, passionate about weird things. Uh, he could be a brilliant inventor, but there could be hits and misses with his career. He would deal with secrets and the unknown. Uh, powerful secrets uh, could be involved in espionage, secret communications, taboo things. He would deal with the occult. Could be a very good spy. Determined to achieve goals. Uh, you would not want to be his enemy. He would be a very formidable opponent. The supernatural could be his passion. Uh, he could uh, try to communicate with the other side. Very powerful, uh, but very weird. Uh, very intense. Uh, is there anything that I left out? No, that's all correct. And again, like when I see this uh, Venus in Aries, like we had with um, Custer, and he had that situation in his seventh house, and his partner, his wife, was his war partner, right? So in this situation with this Venus in Aries, that could also be a case here. I have no idea who we're talking about, but um, yeah, I'm. I'm completely confused by who this might be. Would you like to know whose chart you've been reading? Yes. This is the astrological birth chart of Harry Houdini. <gasps> oh my gosh. It's so funny when you tell me who people are, and then immediately it all just starts to fall into place and I understand. Well, of course. Think about this. Your work is magic. <laughs> That's, oh my gosh, his work, right? His sixth house has Uranus in Leo, okay? And he, oh yeah, okay. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this because this does make a lot of sense. So much sense. Very, very, very interesting. Oh, I love it. I love Houdini. Uh, so, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Harry Houdini uh, was one of the, probably is the best known magician ever. Um, he was certainly one of 
uh, the most uh, popular human beings on the planet around the turn of the century. Um, Harry Houdini uh, was born Eric Weiss uh, on March 24th, 1874 in Budapest. Uh, he was born uh, to uh, Rabbi Meyer Samuel Weiss and uh, Cecilia Weiss. Um, Samuel uh, Weiss, uh, he, uh, there's some conflicting stories about what his life was like uh, in Hungary. Um, one of the stories is that he was, uh, he had a lot of different professions. Um, so he was a rabbi, uh, but before that, he, he was always interested in intellectual things. He found himself in the halls of government, and at some point he needed to escape. He needed to get out of Hungary, and so he chose to come to America. And he had to come out first, and then the family came later. Um, their son, Eric, was one of seven children. Um, and uh, they all fled uh, to the United States and uh, came uh, to New York in 1878. Uh, they then moved to Wisconsin. Uh, they lived in Appleton, Wisconsin, for several years. Uh, Samuel tried to continue being a rabbi, but he found it very difficult to learn English. And uh, eventually he uh, was uh, fired from the temple. He could not speak English, and uh, the family had very difficult financial situations. It was very hard to put food on the table. Wow. Um, Eric saw this, and Eric absolutely loved his mother. Uh, uh, and, and wanted to provide for her and wanted um, her to have all of the nicest things um, and and was uh, upset at, at his father for not being able to provide this and was upset at, at, that uh, the family had to go through such hardships. And so he took on um, jobs at a very early age, doing mm -hmm. all sorts of odd jobs. And he increasingly became fascinated with sleight of hand, with magic. And uh, from a very early age, he would go to the city square in Appleton, and he would put his cap down, and he would start to do card tricks uh, in front of the passers-by, and they would put uh, nickels and dimes and pennies into his cap. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he started to uh, gain a, a stage persona. He could ad-lib. He could make people laugh uh, as he was doing all these tricks. Uh, after the first time that uh, he did this, he uh, took all of the coins, uh, his cap was half full with all of these coins, and uh, he put them all into his very curly hair. And uh, he went home and he told his mother, uh, Mom, shake me, shake me, Mom. Oh, no! And, and the mom had no idea what, what this was about, but she did, and she started shaking him, and all of the coins started to fall out <laughs> and, and got onto the ground. And she was just uh, over the moon, could not... I understand how this was happening and and Harry said uh, God takes care of those who take care of themselves oh. and uh, so uh, he uh, was starting this career but knew that this couldn't possibly be his full time career he'd have to do all these other jobs to try and take care of the family I believe it's also at this time that there was a, a traumatic experience that uh, Harry suffered where um he actually fell uh, into a river. Uh, it was in the middle of winter, and uh, he fell uh, into the river, and it was very cold, and it, uh, it took everything he had to get out of the river. And for the rest of his life, he had this fascination with water and escaping water. 
um eventually uh the he would uh need to find another job somewhere outside of Wisconsin to uh, uh make money for the family and i found this out and this completely uh was amazing to me that he wanted to be a texas cowboy <gasps> Uh, so he was going to get on a train to go down to Texas to help uh, rustle up cattle and bring them up north. Um, but he got on the wrong train. Oh, no. And he went onto the train going to New York City. <gasps> and that would be the fateful decision that would change his life. Wow. Uh, so uh, he ended up in uh, New York. And at one point, he was working at a tie factory. And uh, he actually got his father a job at the same tie factory, working right next to him on the bench. Um, During this time, he became even more fascinated with magic, and he kept going over to Coney Island. Uh, This was already uh, one of the uh, vacation destinations for all of the people in New York uh, to see all of the uh, circus-like uh, entertainment, the uh, what they would call freak shows, the um, different types of magicians and acrobats. He at first started to become an acrobat and uh, was fascinated with how they could contort their bodies and um, their uh, death-defying feats above the crowds. Um, and eventually, while he was doing all of this research and getting to know all of the people, all the performers at Coney Island, he picked up a book uh, that was about uh, Robert Houdin and uh, or Robert Houdin. He was a French magician, and uh, Eric Weiss was completely uh, fascinated with this man and all the tricks that he had done in the uh, early 1800s. And uh, one of his friends told him, "Well, uh, if you put an I at the end of something in French, it means that you are like them." So <gasps> he put an I at the end of Houdin, and he became Houdini. Oh my goodness. Uh, so, uh, during all this time at Coney Island, he, he, uh, befriended all of the performers and he learned all of their tricks. Uh, so he learned from the contortionists, um, and he learned from the sword swallowers how he could, um, contort the muscles in his neck so that he could swallow things and then cough them back up. And so he would learn to swallow needles and swallow keys and swallow these things and then be able to cough them back up during later acts. Um, he learned from uh, people who had no arms that they had to use their legs in order to handle things and use their toes as hands. And so he learned how to do that with his toes. He learned from people who had no legs how to use their teeth in all sorts of different ways. Uh, so this was essentially his education and how to become a magician and how to become an escape artist. Uh, so uh, he uh, went on uh, to uh, perf- continue to perform at Coney Island and across New York um, and uh, all over the place during uh, these vaudeville acts. Um, at the time, he was doing a lot of sleight of hand, a lot of card tricks, and only a few uh, escape attempts. Um, he was also uh, into uh, doing these performances uh, as a spiritualist, as someone who could communicate of. Uh, 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 with people who had died. Um, and he uh, learned how to deceive people into thinking that he was actually communicating with the dead. Um, and this will come in 
into another part of his life later on. Um, but he was not getting a, a whole lot of uh, success doing this act of uh, all these different things of sleight of hand, a little bit of escape, a little bit of spiritualism. Um, during one of these acts that he was performing, uh, he uh, was doing a trick that involved um, some acid, and uh, he actually spilled the acid onto one of the ladies in the <gasps> front row. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it got onto her dress. It did not harm her skin or anything. Oh, um, but this woman was absolutely captivated by this man. And her name uh, was Beatrice uh, Bess Rayner. And she uh, uh, was uh, in her, I think, late teens. And she and he was about 24. And uh, he was absolutely fascinated with her. Mm-hmm. And uh, within three weeks, uh, they would be married. Wow. And uh, he said that that is the one shackle that I hope to never escape. Uh, And she was completely his partner in everything, in the act, in the business, in everything about their lives. And he was uh, completely smitten with her. He would write a love letter to her every day. Uh, Some of the, a lot of the times since they were performing together, he would be writing the love letter in the same hotel room that she was in Mm -hmm. um, and then give it to her. Uh, and uh, someone she joined his act and one of his first real successful tricks was called the metamorphosis uh, which involved uh, him being sealed in a bag and then uh, sealed inside of a trunk and that trunk would be locked and then uh, his assistant and his wife Bess would uh, present that he was completely sealed in the trunk and then she would get on top of the trunk lift a curtain over her head and when the curtain fell down it would be him mm-hmm. and Houdini would be on top of the trunk and then he would open the trunk and she was <gasps> inside of the bag in the trunk oh. uh, so he uh, th- they continued going on the road and did not have a whole lot of success even with this uh, fantastic trick and eventually uh, they stopped and quit magic altogether uh, and then they realized that there were some financial obligations and shows that they had promised to do so they got back onto the trains and started going out and they were in St. Paul, Minnesota when a man named Martin Beck who was a early vaudeville promoter saw the act and uh, he saw him struggling with the card tricks and the side of hand and he said if you stop all of that and just focus on the escapes, mm-hmm. I will give you a job. Wow. And uh, that is what happened, and he started getting promoted across the country, and still uh, not a, a tremendous amount of success, but people were starting to get to know him. Eventually, through this contract, he went to London, and he arrived in London in 1900, and he was supposed to have all of these gigs, all of these theaters lined up, But uh, his contact had not fallen through with that. And so he arrived and there were no gigs and no jobs for him. Uh, So So Houdini uh, got this idea of, well, I'm going to go to the police station and I'm going to tell them to uh, put me in their best handcuffs. And if I can get out of them, then they need to go and tell the newspapers and everything of how great an escape artist I am. So he did. He went to Scotland Yard and he asked to be uh, put into handcuffs and said that he would promptly escape. And they thought this was a great joke. And they actually locked him around a pillar. Mm-hmm. Um, they put his arms around a pillar in uh, Scotland Yard. 
And uh, they said, we're going to go off to lunch uh, and uh, we'll come and get you out uh, once we're done with lunch. Uh, this is what we do to uh, rowdy Americans who think that they can uh, fool the Scotland Yard. And they they turned around and went to the front door. Houdini promptly got out of the handcuffs and said, I think I'll join you. <laughs> and he That's said, this awesome. is what uh, this is how us Americans break free of the English. Ah, and uh, and the pe- the officers, the of Scotland Yard were completely flabbergasted that he had been able to do this. And they promptly went to the reporters and talked to them about this. And Houdini uh, then started having gigs all over London. Uh, he uh, became a, a, a huge success over uh, in England. Um, he would, and he was a, a, a massive uh, promoter of being able to promote himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he would organize these things where people would challenge him, but uh, to to do these escapes where actually he had paid them to challenge him and he had given mm-hmm. them the handcuffs mm-hmm. to give to him. Uh-huh. Uh, and they were all still real handcuffs, but the, but they were completely of his own design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were others who did challenge him who he did not. Uh, arrange ahead of time. Uh, one of them was this bodybuilder named uh, Hodson, mm-hmm. and he had this uh, special set of cuff uh, of, of handcuffs uh, devised that uh, he knew uh, Houdini would not be able to get out of, and uh, then um, he would show up Houdini as this great charlatan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Hodgson uh, gets these special handcuffs uh, onto uh, uh, Houdini and Houdini struggles with it, and he struggles with it for over two and a half hours. Wow. Um, at one point, he asks if he can have uh, the cufflinks taken off uh, for a little bit because um, uh, the, the, it's cutting off the circulation in his arm. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, you cannot, because if oh, you saw no. it come off, then you might. And so he just went back behind the curtain and struggled for uh, minutes and minutes and, and an hour and two hours. And mm-hmm. then eventually, he did get them off. Mm-hmm. And uh the crowd just went wild uh mm-hmm. it, it's really interesting that at this time a lot of his work is done behind a curtain right. so the the uh, audience would see him put these uh contraptions on then he would go behind a curtain and then he would come out mm-hmm. and uh and have it all done uh so that was one of the things he did in England another one uh he went to the uh, hippodrome and he had another set uh of these um handcuffs someone else had challenged them to this and again they were cutting off the circulation to his arm and he asked if he could take his jacket off if he could have uh the um handcuffs taken off so that he could take the jacket off and they said no you cannot mm-hmm. and so he got a pin knife and he cut the sleeves of his jacket so that he could properly uh, maneuver. And again, after um, uh, hours, he got out of these uh, handcuffs and the crowd went wild. Wow. Uh, there was a uh, another uh, trick that he did where uh, this is one of the first ones that involves uh, water where uh, he was put he had a, a milk can uh, specially devised that he could fit into and fill the milk can with water and then he would get into the water and uh, he had a special clock. That was uh, huge and put in front of the curtain so that the audience could see how much time had gone by. And he asked them all to hold their breath (gasps) as long as they could. Uh 
uh, while he held his breath inside of the milk can that was sealed and locked and he tried to get out. Mm -hmm. And so the audience, they couldn't do it for more than a a few seconds, Mm -hmm. most of them not even 30 seconds. Houdini had trained himself in ice water to hold his breath for over four minutes. So he's in the milk can, and he is getting the, uh, the everything off. And it, this is all behind a curtain. He was able to get it off in a matter of seconds, mm-hmm. but he didn't come out. Right. So the audience is just seeing the clock go by second after second, yes. minute after minute. And, and the, they, they are completely uh, uh, having a meltdown here. There's, there's, he's dead. He's dead in the can. Someone go in there, open the can. Mm-hmm. And after four and a half minutes, he would stumble out and, and almost faint oh, uh, yes. in front uh, of the curtain. And the crowd would just go wild. Oh, my goodness, he's still alive. That's amazing. When he had, he had done it. Of minutes before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he did this. He did this across England. He did it across Europe. And then in 1904, he returned to the United States and it was pandemonium. Everyone, uh, he was one of the most uh, well-known people in the world. Um, and uh, while he was in England, he was able to purchase a dress that uh, Queen Victoria had once worn. Mm-hmm. And he was able to present this dress to his mother. Oh. And so his mother could wear a dress that Queen Victoria had worn. Oh um, it's during this time that he starts doing these uh, tricks in straight jackets. And he starts to not have the curtain uh, so that people can see him struggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he makes the struggle even more pronounced than he actually has to to get through it. Um, at one point, he starts to go into a town and he would have uh, the construction operators with the cranes. He would have them uh, shackle him by his ankles, put him onto uh, uh, the hook of the crane, mm-hmm. and he would hang upside down um, and get the straight jacket off. Yes. Uh, and he would do this trick, and he would always make sure that they were doing uh, the crane lifting up right in front of the newspaper offices. Oh. So that the reporters were right there to write everything down and take yes. the pictures, and they would be posted everywhere. Mm-hmm. What's also really great about this is that while it seems like, oh, he's adding this extra level of difficulty because he's hanging, he's upside down uh, in front of all these people in the city street, it's actually easier to get out of a straitjacket if you're upside down oh. because your arms are naturally going towards your head. Uh-huh. Uh, so he was actually making his job easier for oh. himself, but everyone thought it was so much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, another point, he does this uh, a milk can trick, um, but one of the local breweries had filled the milk can with beer. Uh, now, Houdini uh, was a, a fierce health, uh, a per- healthy person. He mm-hmm. did not smoke. He did not drink. He wanted his body to be in complete uh, expert physical shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he actually could not get out of the can because the, the, the fumes and everything from the beer um, made he, – he could not uh, get out of the can. And so he actually did have to get helped out of, of the beer can. Mm-hmm. Um. 
1912, he developed uh, what is uh, what they called the Chinese water torture cabin uh, mm-hmm. or cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, he would be hung upside down and put into this cabinet filled with water. And everyone would see that he'd be shackled by his arms and his legs. And uh, they would see uh, him start to struggle. Uh, and again, the clock would be out. And then the curtain would go down and he would get out very quickly um but nobody knew and so again it would wait minutes and minutes and the people would would scream and shout and someone go in there and save him and then he would stumble out and he would be free mm-hmm. in uh, 1913 um his mother passed away and this was an absolutely devastating blow to him and he started to encounter these spiritualists who were trying to tell him that they could contact his mother from beyond the grave and he was always fascinated with the supernatural and mm-hmm. at first he he thought maybe they were telling the truth but um he also knew that he was lying when he told people he could contact the dead mm-hmm. and so he started this fierce campaign to go after these charlatans these fake people who were preying off of uh, people who who had suffered genuine loss in their lives mm-hmm. um at one point he actually lost one of his dearest friends because of this uh, so one of his friends in London was uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, the man who wrote Sherlock Holmes. And his wife, uh, Mrs. Doyle, claimed that she could contact uh, people from beyond the grave. And they held a seance. And uh, she tried to say that she was contacting Houdini's mother. And uh, he became suspicious because she was doing the sign of the cross. And uh, his his mother is Jewish. Yeah. And uh, was speaking in perfect English. Mm-hmm. And she did not speak perfect English. She hardly spoke any English. Mm-hmm. Why wasn't she speaking Hungarian? Mm-hmm. And uh, so he called her out on all of these things. And the, the friendship completely fell apart because mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, this became such a fierce campaign for him that in 1926, Houdini spoke in front of Congress um, to have Congress put in a law that banned these spiritualists and fortune tellers from practicing in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually had, had spies go in uh, and a few times gone in himself in disguise to uh, these different spiritualists. And he was prepared with a list of the politicians who were going to fortune tellers and discussing important bills <gasps> in Congress with the fortune tellers. Oh, my. And... Uh, in 1926, uh, the, it happened, I, I think, in the fall, around September, October, one of the biggest uh, fortune tellers came up to him and uh, was so angry that uh, he had uh, debunked uh, and was uh, doing uh, all this damage to the spiritualist community that she said that you will not make it to November of this year. <gasps> So that October of 1926, at first, um, he was continuing to go on the road and uh, he was doing the Chinese uh, water uh, torture cabinet trick and he had his legs shackled and he broke his ankle. Uh Uh-oh. And he, of course, continued to go on with the show. Mm 
Um, but after every show, he would need a long period to relax. He would have to recline in a bed or a, a couch. And after one of these uh, performances in Canada, uh, a man named Gordon Whitehead uh, said, uh, well, he went backstage and he said, well, I, I've heard that you can take a punch, that you can contort your muscles so that um, punches don't affect you in the stomach. And then he proceeded to punch him uh, in the stomach. Mm-hmm. And Houdini was reclining on a couch. He was right. not standing up and ready yes. for this yes. and so he punched him several times and uh it was either because of the punches or because of the stress of it all or something happened to where uh, he got uh, houdini got hap- appendicitis and Ugh. his appendix burst and ruptured Ugh. um but he was determined to continue on with the shows and he continued going on tour uh, for several days. Mm. And uh, he eventually ended up in Detroit and one of the doctors did examine him and said, your appendix has burst. Uh, we need to get you into uh, uh, surgery right away. And Houdini said, no, I must do this show. Yeah. Uh, even if it is my last show, I will do it. Mm. And uh, so he did the show and he did not make it to the third act before he passed out. Uh, he was then taken to the hospital, and uh, the appendix had ruptured, and uh, he th- he had a mere hours to live. But he actually survived for a couple more days uh, until he passed away on October 31st, mm-hmm. Halloween yeah. of 1926. Mm-hmm. Um, during his whole crusade against the spiritualists, uh, he always said that if there is one man who can make it back from the dead, it is me. Mm-hmm. And so he told his wife to continue to go to these seances, and if I am able to, I will contact you, and I have a special code word, and if they say this word, then it is truly me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for 10 years, um, Bess went to uh, all of these different uh, spiritualists and went to these seances, and the word was never spoken. Mm-hmm. And eventually the last seance was held on top of a hotel in Hollywood, um, and it happened on uh, Halloween of 1936. It was a live broadcast over the radio. Mm-hmm. And there was over an hour on the radio of silence. Nothing mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. And at the end, uh, she blew out the candle and said, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. Yes, yes. And at that very moment, there was a massive rainstorm, mm-hmm. thunder, lightning, a, a deluge. But it was not over the entire city of Los Angeles. It was just over that one hotel. <gasps> oh, my. Uh, so um, Houdini is uh, one of the most remarkable men ever. And uh, the fact, you know, his, his acts meant so much to people. Uh, I, I, doing the research on this, it, it, it occurred to me um, from what the different experts were saying that he was doing a lot of these acts in New York City, especially the public ones on the cranes and uh, in front of everyone. And so many of his uh, uh, audience were immigrants fresh off the boat who had just escaped something themselves and had escaped and were now enjoying this freedom. And the first thing they see in New York City is this man who is also an immigrant, who has also escaped and is is fighting for his freedom a night after night and they could reson it resonated with them and it was so important and uh the he was such a a magnificent man in in business and how to promote himself in technology and how to make all of these different contraptions and how to survive um 
he was just a, a, an absolutely uh, amazing person. And uh, I, I think that this chart um, bears out what he did pretty well. Well, thank you, Chamber. I also think that Houdini was miraculous and amazing. And a lot of things in this chart do make really perfect sense. And I'm really, I'm really impressed that they had his birth time and that uh, we were able to get this close because it makes absolute sense that he would be so unique and so different with that Aquarius rising. And then Saturn conjunct his first house cast, making him want to do better and better. Now, having Mercury and Pisces in that first house also is, um, you know, leads you to because uh, Pisces is ruled by Neptune. His communication was deceptive, right? Because Neptune rules Pisces and he has Mercury and Pisces. He was able to deceive, right? E mm. Easily deceive people mm. with his abilities. And then his his ethics and his determination and his passion and all of these things all connected. Interestingly enough, in the second house, I'm, I really think I want to look at other aspects of the second house and see what may be there. Uh, but definitely that, um, that having Uranus in Leo in the sixth house, his work being very unique entertainment, very innovative, and uh, very interesting. And then his moon in the fifth house, uh, love of, um, you know, his mother did have a love of children and, and he did love his mother. And his mother, you know, was, um, even though she had moon, even though he has moon in Gemini, clearly he had a very, very close connection with his mother. But uh, Wow. And then that cavalier behavior as far as career on the 10th house and on the midhaven, right? Very gambling, very, very uh, fearless, right? That Sagittarius there on the 10th house. It all makes a lot of sense. I'm, I am. Uh, and then also in that 10th uh, house, you know, having that um, Capricorn on the 12th house. So him being able to understand the business of this and and how he would, you know, work at the business of it. The business being his karma, you know, some karma with the executive business of it, with that 12,000 Capricorn. Very, very, very interesting. Very interesting. Yes, I, uh, I think on our scale of uh, right on the money to way out in outer space, this one is definitely right on the money. This is uh, who uh, Harry Houdini or Eric Weiss uh, was. Very lovely. Excellent choice, Janet. Your choices are all very exciting. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, that concludes uh, this episode of uh, History in Retrograde. I'd like to thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to uh, support the show, uh, we have uh, all the links to our social media pages uh, included in the description of the episode. Uh, we also have a link to our PayPal account if you're feeling extra generous. Every little bit helps us to uh, produce a better quality show and get the word out there. And, uh, of course, if you are enjoying the show, please uh, tell your friends and family uh, to to, uh, check us out 
And uh, Mom, do you have uh, anything else to say? Yes, I just want to say that we love you guys and we thank you so much for listening and we love to hear from you. And we appreciate you sharing the show and whenever you send little contributions to the PayPal, it's always very exciting. And uh, these old sparrows and I will keep you up to date as to how their family <laughs> grows. Uh, yes, uh, please uh, stay tuned next week for more exciting developments about the Sparrow Nest. <laughs> uh, so, uh, as always in conclusion, as long as your houses are in order and the stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. Everything is going to be just fine. Thank you so much for being there, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.